This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight of giving me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. So I don't know if you know me, and if you don't, I don't know where you've been, but I'm a writer. I've got a couple of books out. I'm working on a couple of projects right now as well. I curate a nonprofit with my oldest son, as well as my wife and my youngest son, uh, down in Haiti. That's been really meaningful for us. And I'm the lead follower of a faith community I'm really proud to be a part of called Mission Church. The last few years, actually it's been several years now, um, it seems like my life has handed me some intense loss, and I've gone through some things that I wasn't exactly planning on. And because of that, the way I am approaching pretty much everything in life now has changed. My approach to scripture, theology, philosophy of life, what I think about church and pastoring, all of that has been affected. In fact, it's been affected enough that the denomination that I was a part of my entire life recently just uninvited me from their group. So that was cool. And I'm processing that. And that's a part of what this podcast is and a whole lot of other things. Uh, A bunch of friends have been asking me to put something together where, where I talk about how it is that I'm arriving at the places I'm arriving at. And of course, by a bunch of friends, I mean nine. So that's what I'm doing throughout this season of uh, the podcast. Along the way, I've invited a few friends to join in with me. And at last check, they are all, let's see now, looking through the list. Yep, they're all smarter than me. So I think you're going to find that helpful. Uh, Combined with anything remotely intelligent that I accidentally say, I think that's going to be cool too. I've included uh, more info in the show notes and at the end of this podcast, but feel free to drop me a line. And thanks so much for being a part of the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Okay, first off, uh, so you're probably trying to figure out if you're going to benefit from this podcast. So I'm going to try to give you some idea of where we're going here. Um, It's built mostly for, well, I hate to categorize people, but um, for loosely speaking, a couple of different kinds of people. A, people who call themselves uh, Jesus followers or Christians, but recognize that they've been going through some things that have caused them to now approach life a little bit differently and to think about things differently. And so, um, while you're in this transition, um, I hope what we talk about here will serve you well. But also, B, I think this thing is built for people who may no longer call themselves Christians, maybe even people who reference themselves as atheists. Whenever I get the opportunity to interact with an atheist, I'm always really excited to do so. In fact, sometimes maybe too much and freak people out. But one of the questions I always ask is, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. 
And it's remarkable how many times um, we find common denominators. And I'll end up saying, hey, that's a God I don't believe in either. And I really relate to that. There's actually been a kind of a piece of my life where I say now, I can say that um, I've had a I've had to go through atheism myself. Like there's a there's a type of God that I've had to let go of and not believe in any longer. And it's it's opened the way for whole new kinds of thinking. So I think this stuff will be helpful for you too. And just so you know, like I don't approach reading scripture, uh, neither do I approach life in a way where I think like the Bible is teaching us that there are like the good people, the theists, and then there are the bad people, you know, the atheists. I don't think that's what it's about. I actually think all of us are types of theists. I mean, we're all worshiping something. What did Sultanheisen say? He said something like, you know, there's a line that goes through all of our hearts, um, and on either side is good and evil, and, and I think that that's true. And that we're all theists, we're all, we're all worshiping something. It's just, um, you know, the question is whether or not what you worship brings you life or it, you know, sucks the life out of you. But we're all worshiping something. And furthermore, we're all trying to figure out what the other person is worshiping because we're, we're so interested in, uh, to borrow a whole concept from Rene Girard and the world of uh, psychology and anthropology, um, mimetic theory, we're also interested in what the other person is worshiping. You know, we don't even know what we worship half of the time. It's like, you know, you watch you watch the guy in the commercial. You, go, you watch the guy in the beer commercial, and there's a piece of you that says, oh, I, I want what that guy has. And by the way, if this wasn't true, man, marketing marketers would never use this. This is why they use it all the time. So at some level, subconscious level, you know, I, I say, oh, I want what that guy has. Meanwhile, that guy is just an actor, you know, and in real life, he has no idea what he wants. In fact, probably what he's doing is he's out somewhere right now, you know, watching another commercial, thinking subconsciously, oh, I want whatever that person on that commercial has, you know. And so these companies, they, they market uh, to our very basic and core needs, and they get us caught up in going after things that don't bring life. And all that to say that I just, I think we're all theists at some level, and I hope um, I hope that's not disrespectful to those of you who have definitely written, you know, God off. And I just want you to know you're welcome uh, onto this podcast, and, and I'm glad that you're you're a part of it. I will say we're going to talk about some heavy stuff here. Like, I'm not going to kid you, but life is heavy. I don't know if you figured that out, and it's not going to get any better. We're not going to get to any answers by, you know, hiding behind the next episode of Netflix or whatever it is, or, you know, the next drink or the next over-the-counter or under-the-counter narcotic. Um, it's going to take some real thinking uh, to be able to unwind some of the problems in our society and to reapproach it um, in a different way. And I want to tell you right here at the outset that you got to stick with this. You got to work hard. We're not going for short, pithy sound bites, you know, the over, overly simplistic thing that'll fit in 280 characters or less. Now, I'm always cool with finding those, and and they can be helpful, but only after you've worked for the, through complexity, you know, to get to simplicity before complexity is a real problem in our society, and we all want the quick answer and the quick fix, and. Um, that's not what we're trying to go for on this particular series of audio recording files. Uh, we're trying to take our time and un 
unwind some stuff and, and work through some things. And I just want to tell you to, to hang in there. Stick with it. Don't give up. Um, if I can you know, begin to process some of this stuff, I know that you can. And notice I didn't say if I can get it because I'm not sure if I get it or even what it is some days I'm getting. But I've been sticking with the process and trying to journey through it. And if I can do it, I know you can. Because I was, frankly, I was a terrible student in high school and undergrad. I never even finished, you know, postgraduate studies. Um, It's not like I have a million followers. I mean, obviously I will after this episode. Or I have a million people reading my books. Actually, my second book right now, I... I, uh, I noticed recently it was on, you know, Kendall will give you like what rank your book is. And mine was something like 980,000. I mean, that's crazy. I don't know exactly what constitutes a bestseller, but I'm pretty sure 980K, isn't it? One of my good friends, that's been my nickname lately. He's been calling me 980K. But um, anyhow, the point is, if if I can, you know, work through this and process this stuff, um, I know that you can. I will say I have had, if I can put it this way, something of an advantage. Having been through what I've been through, which is pretty intense loss, has carved out a space in, t- in, in the interior of my life that's really given me room um, to wrestle with some things. Uh, the space has caused me to be desperate, and I've really leaned into that space. Something very important that Jesus said was, you're blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you mourn. And as I've gone through loss, I've just, I've always decided to take Jesus at his word. I'm like, this is, this, this has to make sense. And so I've leaned into the grieving and to the mourning. And because of that, there's been a lot of pain. But also, I got to tell you, that pain has kind of acted like an explosion a bit. And like an excavation site almost, where then in turn I've been able to have room to, again, wrestle, which is probably a word I use a lot with new ways of thinking, and uh, to be able to let go of old ways of thinking. And there's so much good, man. There just is. There's so much good out there, and there's so much room for growth. But it is going to require us to let go of some old things, some old theology and some old mental constructs, and dare I say, some old religious baggage. I do want to tell you right up front here that the religious culture that I've grown up with and that I know really well, it's not it's not all bad and I would hate it. I would hate for people to think that I'm just trying to throw it all away. It's actually given me some good things. Um, It's given me a sense of right and wrong. It's given me an awareness of, like, order about things. Uh, It's given me criteria criteria for making decisions about health and unhealth. And it's also given me an appreciation of fear, which has proven to be beneficial on a lot of different times. You know, sometimes you need to be afraid to, to step out into the proverbial you know, street full of vehicles going right and left. And so that fear has served me. And I recognize all of those things have helped my life be better. It's given me solid things upon which I've been able to build. But, and this is so much of the point, there is still building to be done. There's movement to be made because nothing's static, man. Everything changes. And as thankful as I am for the past, I realize I live in the present which is racing 
at breakneck speed towards the future. So my heritage, my tradition, you know, the religious kind of environment that I grew up in, I'm thankful for it, but it is not the end of the story. Now, you know, the, the religious type have been responding to me a lot lately by saying things like, okay, it might not be the end of the story, but, and then they'll go quote a scripture and they'll say something like, uh, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is true. I, I believe that's true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not the end. It's not the end. This thing is all going somewhere. And it may have started in fear and in structure and in order, but it's going towards something else. It's going towards love. And I'd probably rewind that a little bit and say it's, it doesn't mean it's growing towards disorder or unorder. There's still order involved with all that. But if fear is the beginning, um, it's going somewhere and it's it's going towards love. I think 1 John chapter 4 might be the pinnacle of all of the scripture where John talks about love. And among other things, he says, perfect love casts out all fear. But I think the opposite could be true as well. Perfect fear casts out all love. And so at the end of the day, you've got to decide whether you're a fear person or a love person. And I've just decided it's about love. That's just what I've decided. I recognize that a great deal of the reason I've been able to make this choice is because of what I've been through. The loss that I've been through has you know, provided a space for me. Now, everyone's loss is different, and I don't need to get into the game of trying to compare mine to yours or yours to someone else's. You know, all of our loss is subjective. So whatever it is you're dealing with, you know, it could be the worst thing in the world um, because it's you. It's what you're dealing with. And so there's no reason to compare. Um, having said that, losing a child is a pretty intense thing, and that's what I've been through. And it really, for me, it's the worst thing. I can't imagine anything worse happening than that. And so coming out of that loss, um, as I tried to approach how now I view life and, and the church and the Bible and philosophy of life, you know, one of the undergirding thoughts was, well, what's the worst that can happen if I have to change some of my presuppositions and think differently? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? The worst thing in the world to me has already happened. And so whatever we get from here on out, you know, we're going to be able to deal with. It doesn't, doesn't make, you know, it right when injustice continues to happen in my life, but it does give me um, the foundation that now I've built and I've built it firmly on love to be able to deal with it and to journey with it a little bit better. So in a weird way, you know, I, of course, if I had any choice in the matter, I would not have allowed for that thing to happen. But in a weird way, I'm, I'm grateful for that thing because, you know, frankly, I'm a better person coming out of it. And the choices I'm making now, I think are built on, on, on a healthier outlook in life. So whether you've, you know, dealt with loss on that level or not, either way, I, I just want you to know here at the outset, you can do this. Uh, you can work through these complex problems. You, you just got to stick with it. And I really think you got to cultivate a sense of gratitude for what you've had in your life and for how, you, you know, for how you've arrived here. And then now just be open and be willing to let go of some of the things in order to go somewhere new. You know, it, it's getting over the fear of how you've built meaning in the past and just to, to be able to let that go and to be open to new things. And this is a safe space uh, to let go of some of those old frameworks in order to lean into to something new. So 
I just want to tell you to keep your eye on love. And now as I end the intro of this very first episode, um, I'd like to uh, read you a little email exchange I had with a friend of mine not too long ago. Someone who had been in and out of our faith community, struggling with God and how to think differently, finally found peace and they emailed me and they said, I found calm for my life. This calm was predicated upon the personal truth that religion or even a belief in a higher being does more harm than good to me. Simply put, I don't believe in God anymore. And I wrote back. I simply said, I'm so glad you have found some peace in your life. That was the end of the communication until they showed up a few months later. After that, I sent them a note. They responded by saying the following, Thank you for your continued kindness towards me. To be blunt, my brief appearance in no way means I believe in God or in searching or seeking or necessarily wanting anything to do with religion. Why should I subject myself to the feeling and knowledge that I am an evil being plus broken failure with no redeeming qualities to offer? I'm fine without a God who views me with revulsion and contempt. There is no life in that. There is no hope in that. Holy cow, that was painful to read. Also, in many respects, very good to read because I think this person is accurately getting at the heart of so much of what the problem can be when someone is raised on a steady diet of punitive, retributive, angry Christianity, which seems to be so much of what Christianity is. It doesn't have to be. It could be different, and I think that it is different. And it's part of the reason I do what I do. Because frankly, I have no need for that kind of God either. For a God that is revulsed by me, I'm not interested in that either. So I relate to the letter on some level, and the person gets a lot of things really right, even though it's really sad. I didn't respond because I didn't want to be pushy at all. But here's what I would have said if I would have had the opportunity. I would have said something like, you know what? You're always welcome here in this faith community, whether you believe in God or not. You don't have to believe in order to belong. And I would have said, keep searching. Keep searching for truth. And if you've got a choice to go for truth or go for God, always go for truth. Because it'll lead you to something really good. In fact, I believe it'll lead you to God. That's where truth will lead. But our gods, they don't always lead us to truth. I'm the youngest of five. I grew up in a pretty sanguine, loving family. Had a good relationship with my parents and my siblings. 
lot of good things. And in the middle of all that, we were a deeply religious people, and there was a lot of good that came with it, and some maybe not so good. But nevertheless, it didn't matter either way. That's the way that we were. That's all I ever knew. And growing up in that environment, I felt myself that I wanted to become a pastor. And so I became uh, the third generation in my family to have uh, to be a pastor. And so my whole life has been basically immersed and or indoctrinated into a pretty conservative evangelical uh, holiness denomination marked by uh, really strong binary thinking that you know, dominate so much of the thinking of a lot of our social constructs, not the least of which is our religions. And that was certainly my case. You know, a lot of it is about uh, just trying to figure out who's in and out and constructing a theology around that. <laughs> it reminds me, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, it's a great joke. I don't know if I can tell it as well as it deserves, but I think it's by the, a guy by the name of Emo Phillips, and he says one day that he was crossing a bridge, and he saw this guy who was about to jump, and he said, I told him, he said, don't do it. And the guy said, well, nobody loves me. And I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And so I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, a Christian. And he said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. And I said, me too. Wait, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And he responded by saying, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And I said, that's great. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. And I said, die, you heretic. And I pushed him over. <laughs> I know, it's good. I probably didn't tell as well as it should have been told. But anyhow, that kind of black and white in and out thinking uh, has dominated a lot of my background and a lot of my life for good or for bad. I know there's a lot of good people who probably fall into that category. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But throughout my life, in little ways to big ways, and I always struggled with that kind of approach, and I struggled with theology um, and the church, ecclesiology, and trying to figure out what it was that I believed. And I was developing, you know, probably some different um, thoughts that were a little bit different than mainstream. But um, on New Year's Day of 2015, my life took an abrupt change that would see it be... Um, you know, would see my thinking change to the degree that it was a lot different than mainstream thinking. But on uh, New Year's Day 2015, my daughter was killed in a car wreck. And there was obviously all kinds of things that came out of that. But mostly for me, it was just a lot of tension and a lot of questions um, about, you know, God's proximity. Like, where was he when this happened? And what does life mean? And uh, what does... Um, you know, why did my daughter have to die and what can I expect in the future and all those kinds of things. And there are similar kinds of questions, I assume, that you have asked um, as you've thought about some of the injustices in your, in your own life. Well, all these questions I'm asking about where God was uh, when my daughter died and, and why did she have to die, to me, the more I thought about them, they all funneled into one even deeper question. 
And the deeper question for me was, where was God when Jesus died? And, you know, the other question associated with that, why did Jesus have to die? Because if it's true that the Son of God died, this is the most absurd news probably in all of humanity to consider the Son of God dying is, is truly crazy, and it's amazing. And so, um, I really had to wrestle with what I believed about that. Now, prior to New Year's Day 2015, um, my answer to either one of those questions had, uh, was, was, was predominantly influenced by this idea that, that God had to have been absent from the death of Jesus, that basically he was waiting for Jesus to die so that he could then forgive. And why did he need to forgive? Well, because of our sin. So, in my former life, I basically imagined that everything revolved around my sin and our sin. It was um, our origin story. It's the way I put it sometimes. And because that was our origin story, we needed something to deal with sin. Well, enter the gospel story as it had always been told me and as, you know, frankly, as I had told it to lots of others in one way, shape, or form. And basically, that gospel story uh, goes something like this, that, that we're all born into sin and we constantly sin, which creates an indebtedness to God. And God is upset about this at some level. And so, He sent His Son, Jesus, to pay our debt which Jesus does when he substitutes himself for us on the cross. And then God punishes Jesus instead of us, which frees God up to forgive us. And if we'll just believe this and confess our sins and pray to accept Jesus as our Lord, then we can escape punishment. And then we're invited to be with him in heaven forever. And of course, if we don't believe, if we don't confess and pray, then God has no choice because his hands are tied and he has to ascend us to a place of eternal punishment. I may have oversimplified a few things, but for the most part, I think that's pretty accurate in how it, that story gets communicated in a lot of different churches and a lot of different settings and has been for the last couple hundred years, especially here in the West. And I should mention, I don't necessarily disagree with everything wholeheartedly. Uh, I think there's some truth in some of the things that I've said. Um, there, there is an allure, first of all, to it, because it is what we've been, or at least what many of us have been taught. I think it feels logical. I think it's linear on some level. I, I do think it's relatively simple to understand as much as anyone can understand an atonement uh, theory. It definitely holds out the hope of heaven, which is good, and it also emphasizes the willingness of Jesus to sacrifice, which is good. So, those are all good things, but there are also some problems, and there are especially some problems as I begin to take that kind of thinking into the tension and the pain of my life to try to explain why it is that loved ones die and then why it is that Jesus had to die. So, I've listed a few things out here. I've got them written down so that I'll remember to go through them. So, allow me to read them, maybe make some comments. And if you've never uh, worked through this kind of nonviolent atonement theory stuff, this will be brand new for you and your head will probably be spinning. Just, just know, you know, basically welcome to the club. And for all of us who have been through this, it's, it's not super easy. 
but you can get there if you just keep working at it. And and one little podcast isn't going to fix it for you. It's it's probably going to take multiple approaches. But here here are a few things that I begin to identify as problematic for me as I brought my old way of thinking into dealing with the intense pain of the loss uh, that I was experiencing in my life. Uh, number one, um, our culture's basic shared definition of sacrifice. It requires us to define sacrifice in transactional terms, like uh, that Jesus, you know, his blood paid off God, and it was just this momentary sacrifice, and, and it, it appeased God. Uh, you might think of the, of the Mayans or the Aztecians throwing the virgin into the volcano to assuage their God's wrath. And as we think about sacrifice, that tends to be the way our culture defines sacrifice. And I think there are better and healthier ways. And and in other episodes, we'll probably define sacrifice in bigger, better ways. But secondly, it creates a God in the need of Jesus's blood as payment in order to be convinced that he should forgive. And I don't even know how this works, because if forgiveness is a free gift, how can it be called a gift if God has been paid off? Third, I couldn't help but for this to all kind of coerce me into thinking that my God was retributive and angry and full of wrath and anger, which are terms that show up in the Bible. So, you can read the Bible in a particular way. Well, obviously, because a lot of people do to arrive at that conclusion. But I was struggling with uh, the fact that I had to serve an angry God. And I don't think I'm the only one. I'm reminded of the letter that I read from my atheist friend. Do you remember how they talked about not needing a God who was, you know, angry at them and and who, um, you know, didn't want to be with them. And so I think it creates issues for a lot of us. Uh, Next, it renders Jesus' command for us to take up our own cross as meaningless and impotent, which is a really another interesting angle to this whole thing. It renders Jesus' command for us to take up our own cross meaningless and impotent. Because why would we need to take up any cross if his cross was the final work and that was, you know, fixed everything. Next, it reduces salvation to a simple belief in what Jesus did without asking us to get involved in the ongoing work of both our salvation and the salvation of the world. And finally, it effectively ignores the entirety of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching, all of which was done out of a context of mercy and not sacrifice. So, I think all of these things and more are indicative of the kinds of problems that exist when we start with the story of sin. And I begin to rethink this and read lots of folks. It's not like I made this up on my own. I mean, there's a lot of people starting with their early church fathers, so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, who were wrestling with the same thing. I, I wasn't aware of all of that. But I began to rethink this as I read some of those folks and realized there's, there's an older story than just our sin story. It's the story of God's goodness and God's creation and God's blessing. The idea of sin doesn't show up until the third chapter of Genesis. The idea of blessing and goodness and creation shows up right away at the very first chapter in the very first book of our sacred text. And so I started thinking in terms of you know, I'm not an original sin guy. I'm really not. I think I'm an original blessing guy, which is more original or 
than Zen. So when I took this kind of thinking into my existential, existential struggles about my own life and death and my, the life and death of my daughter and the life and death of Jesus, you know, now regarding the question of God's proximity when Jesus died, well, my old way of looking at it really only gave me one answer, and that one answer was essentially God couldn't have been there when Jesus died. He had to have been somewhere else. You know, his back had to have been turned because he really willed the death of his son. And so because of that, you know, he was just waiting for for Jesus to die somewhere else so that so that then he could enter back into the scene. And you know, I pretty quickly rejected that answer. That's something that I had been given, and it was all from my old context, and, and I didn't like that. I didn't think he was absent. It's not like I thought, you know, when Jesus died, that God was on the other side of Jerusalem just waiting, you know, for him to expire so that he could come in and forgive us. I don't think it took place like that. And I never felt comfortable in splitting up the Trinity in that way. Indeed, as if we could even split up the Trinity in that way. So I thought, no, he's got to be right there with Jesus. And I believe that's also what the New Testament writer said. Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He was in Christ. And so that's what I began to reaffirm to myself. And, and I knew that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and that God is love. And love is always present with us. It's not as if love takes a day off or says, time out, you know, I'm really tired. I can't be with you right now. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what love is. So where was God? He was present with Jesus. And why did Jesus have to die? Well, I had no other answer for this question because my my old answer was he had to die because God needed him to die to forgive us. But once I decided and realized, no, that God didn't need, he could just forgive. (laughs) Imagine that. God can just forgive. So, why did Jesus die? Well, the answer is because we killed him. The real question is, why did he even show up in the first place? And the answer to that question is, because of love. God loves us. As Richard Rohr says, love always become, always becomes what it gazes upon. And God gazed upon us and looked upon us so much that he became one of us. It's almost like he couldn't even help himself. He just had to become one of us in our world. This whole kind of thinking revolutionary, uh, revolutionized my thoughts about life and death and about God. And it started to make a measure of sense. Because for me, love really was presence. I, I knew about love and presence because I was a parent. And, and any parent knows about that. And if you're a parent, you, it's almost like you can't even help yourself. You just automatically become a part of your kid's world. You, you become a part of them. I mean, you may not even like band camp or football or uh, quizzing or choir practice, you know, or any number of things that we could think of, you know. But, but you wind up being a part of all those things because your child is, and you love your child so much, you go with them and you're, you are with them and you enter into their world in a variety of different ways. 
And I realized the more that I had interacted with my kids and watched them and hung out with them, the more I had become like them. This is what love does. Love is presence. And by your presence, so we love. God was present with Jesus. And I believe God was present with my daughter. I don't think death necessarily separates us from God. And I certainly don't think sin necessarily separates us from God, although that's what we've been taught. In fact, there's spiritual laws out there that we've taught ourselves to share with others that we've created based on this idea that God can't be in our presence when we sin, which pretty much all of that comes from one verse in a little book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, one verse that's taken out of context that suggests, you know, the prophet is saying, God, you can't even look upon sin. And then we stop reading. But the rest of the verse is, you can't even look upon sin, so why do you? And we've concocted a theology from that verse and a couple of other small places. But no, God's not overwhelmed by our sin. You never saw Jesus once. You never read about Jesus once in the gospel stories, like turning to Peter and saying, Oh, Peter, get these filthy sinners away from me. You know, get these diseased and sick and these prostitutes and these Samaritans, whatever the case might be. No, that never happens, man. In fact, Jesus does just the opposite. He does the opposite so much that he became known as a friend of sinners. He was present to them. He was present to them even in their sin. Sinners weren't separated from Jesus. The rank-and-file ordinary person was a huge fan of Jesus. They were not the people gnashing their teeth at him. No, it was those participating in the systemic sin of religiosity. It was the religious people that killed Jesus. It was the religious people that had so much trouble with the Son of God. So, sin doesn't separate us from God. Where are we going to go? We can't be separated from God. The cross didn't happen so that Jesus could get God's attention. No, God was already there. He was already present because love is present. I wish my atheist friend, the one, the one who wrote me the letter that I read earlier, I, I wish they knew that love is never repulsed by us. The reason this all means something to me is if, if God could have killed Jesus in order to get himself, in a sense, in the right kind of mood, to be able to forgive us in order to appease himself, well, then God certainly could have killed my daughter for similar kinds of reasons. And frankly, I don't need a God like that. There's already plenty of killing and violence going on that we've created. It doesn't sound like a God to me. No, it sounds like something we would do. You know, something punitive and retributive and something uh, revengeful. No, I think, I think a real God could actually forgive. And that's what I've decided that we have. So, I went for truth. I didn't go for my old ideas of God. I went for truth, and it led me, well, it led me to a better God.
Now, all of this kind of thinking has helped me evolve. And if, if you want to know how it is I'm arriving at some of the places I'm arriving at, and I know some of you that are tuning in, you only know a little bit of part of the story of, of how I was asked to to leave uh, the ecclesial hierarchy, we might say, that I've been with my whole life. And you're, you're trying to figure out how, how did that happen? Well, all of this plays into it. There is nothing that I deal with in my personal life, but certainly in the life of my church, where a nonviolent atonement theory doesn't intersect with. Um, my entire view about God has been altered because now it's predicated upon a God who doesn't need violence. I believe, I've just decided there's a way to read the Bible that might lead you to think that God needs violence, but I don't think that's the healthiest way to read it. I've just decided that I believe that God is actually capital L love. And anything less than love requires God to be into sacrifice. But Jesus, who was the exact representation of God, made it clear. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God is love. It's the best thing that we have going for us. Actually, in the end, it might be the only thing we have going for us. All right, thanks so much for joining me on the very first episode of Season Uno of Jonathan underscore Foster. If you're up for it, uh, follow me here on SoundCloud. Also, look me up online, jonathanfosteronline.com. What else? Let's see, Facebook is Jonathan Foster Author. Twitter is Jonathan underscore Foster. Good grief, too many handles. You know what? Just cue the cool podcast music. <laughs>